It's time for the tactics meeting. Episode 17, Natural Damage Resource Assessment. With Greg Challenger, President, Marine Scientist from Polaris Applied Sciences, Inc. I'm your planning section chief, Dan Smiley, and I'll be your host as we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. But before we start, I want to tell you about an exciting webinar that's being presented by the Pacific States British Columbia Oil Spill Task Force. It's on lessons learned from virtual drills and prevention efforts during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's being held on June 30th from 10.30 a.m. to 12 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I'll be presenting on the future of virtual command posts and hope that you can join us on Zoom. The fact that this is a virtual event should give you some idea of what the future may bring. For a meeting link, go to oilspilltaskforce.org and click on events. Well, Greg Challenger, a president and marine scientist for Polaris Applied Scientists, Welcome to the program. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much for having me. Our special topic today is natural resource damage assessment. And I want to start off by saying that when I do drill design to put together worst case exercises, often the very first thing we say is out of play is NERDA. Right? We're not going to exercise NERDA. So it, it has fallen into the area of a known unknown for me. I understand it's out there and it needs to be done. And that's about where my knowledge stops. And I think I'm not alone. So I'm hoping that you can guide us through what natural damage resource assessment is and how we can best go about managing that from the perspective of the responsible party, especially in the early stages when we're trying to mobilize so much equipment and so many people, we're trying to staff the wildlife branch, we're trying to staff the environmental unit. Why should I be thinking about NERDA? So if we could start with a definition, what is natural resource damage assessment? Sure. Um... It's like any, any other project you're involved in, say an environmental assessment. However, in the legal sense, damages mean dollars. And so basically, we, uh, the goal is to try and turn the loss to the environment uh, into, uh, into dollars by way of restoration projects, the cost of restoration of the injured resources from an oil spill. So you assess the loss, turn that into a restoration project, and the damages are then the cost of either acquire, acquiring equivalent services or replacing the services or, uh, or other types of restoration. Um, and the categories involved in damage assessment are not just your, uh, the typical things you think of like fish and wildlife and water column and, and marine mammals and, and uh, coastal marsh and vegetation. Um, some you know benthic resources in a, in a tropical environment like coral reefs, but they're also humans. Um, human lost use is part of it uh, 
human recreation and enjoyment of the environment is considered a natural resource in natural resource damage assessment as well. That must be hard to put a price on. It is challenging um, because, you know, with, with the, some of the natural resources, you can, uh, you know, you can quantify the, the number of fish affected or the acres of marsh affected or the, with people, it's a little more challenging. You might be able to estimate the number of people that would normally use the resource, but you have the difficulty of, of how do you replace their enjoyment? And uh, oftentimes that would be uh, the value of their enjoyment is measured by how much money they may spend if they go to the beach with a family of four and how many families uh, were not able to enjoy the beach. And then that money is turned into a project whereby people can access the environment and enjoy it. Uh, you know, the building of a boat ramps or access uh, boardwalks to access the beach and things to help people uh, enjoy the environment more easily. Um, and it's just associated with the exchange of money for the cost of that project. Okay, well, what are the exposures to the responsible party during an oil spill? Well, natural, uh, natural resource damages, of course, are one of them. But uh, as you well know, the, the cleanup and the response uh, is something that uh, the responsible party is, has to pay for. There are third-party losses. Uh, in other words, fishermen may claim the inability to fish or they may have damaged gear. Um, their uh, seafood mariculture operations may be affected. Even if the oil spill didn't get into them, there's a perception effect. There are potential long-term liabilities of repairing the environment and monitoring uh, that repair. And there are penalties that may happen, Clean Water Act penalties. There can be negligence and criminal penalties. And then there is the natural resource damage assessment, which is sort of the last uh, on most people's lists and often out of play, as you say, in, in, the, in exercises. Uh, is the assessment of the environment and the replacement of any lost use. Uh, natural resource damage assessment is um, unique to the United States in that it's not just reinstatement of the environment. Like in, in the international conventions, the Bunker uh, Convention, the, uh, the, um, the Civil Liability Convention, in the international conventions, if you broke it, you have to fix it. And that could just be what we call primary restoration, like the cleanup. Uh, doing a good cleanup and a good response uh, may be reinstatement internationally. In the United States, that's primary restoration and that will help the environment recover. But then there's a loss until that environment recovers from the moment the incident occurred until the environment recovers, there's an interim lost use of ecological services. And that is called compensatory restoration. So the goal of natural resource damage assessment, uh, the goal of the response is the primary restoration and the natural resource damage assessment is the compensatory restoration. So if I have an oil spill and I ask the responsible party, clean it up and we get to the point where everyone agrees that clean is clean. Yeah. But... It affected the salmon run going into the local river. And we, we know what the run was prior to the event. And in subsequent years, 
those numbers have dropped off and they don't come back to their previous numbers for a decade. Are we, is that something that we're looking at as part of, of NERDA to say that, hey, these fishermen and the, and the orca who are yeah. eating off of them, I don't suppose they get the orca get an award of their own. No, no, uh, no claim, no claims number for JPod. Right? Well, the the reward that the uh, orca would get would be a restoration project for the salmon uh, that were lost in that ten year period. If if the natural resource damage assessment can uh, identify that their exposure to either the fish or their habitat has occurred, and then there is a link, a pathway. To that from that exposure to an effect like say in a salmon stream your example maybe um, the contamination makes it difficult to find their natal stream or they they don't they decide not to to return in their natal stream um, and so that's a pathway and then you'd have to have a measurable or observable effect as you say if you do yearly counts and uh, the the diminished return there are reasons for it other than uh, it, it, the, the difficult question there is always baseline because baseline can change. Uh, we have El Nino years, we have salmon runs that vary. Um, you would have to look at uh, how the diminished return relates to natural variability. And of course, there's between the responsible party scientists and the government scientists, there can be a lot of debate and hopefully, and we have... Uh, Pretty much in all cases, we'll end up reaching an agreement, even if we don't uh, agree on the scientific information at the end of the day, it may become a negotiated settlement for a restoration project. Um, and because oftentimes data are not perfectly clear and uh, it becomes difficult and we have to, sometimes you can also use models. And if we know the water column concentrations, we don't have evidence of of uh, injury, but we know the water column concentrations could be toxic to fish or early life stages of fish. That can be enough to uh, establish a claim. So the responsible party, it sounds like you're suggesting that they should be doing their own studies, research, parallel to uh, government agencies in order to compare and contrast the data findings. Is that is that what you're suggesting? That's that's an option. Although I'm not a fan of that option. I, I uh, there are there are several options to damage assessment. One of them is for the responsible party to we call it trust the trustees. Um, just stand back and wait to hear what the trustees say, and 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 then. Um, and then in, become engaged. Uh, the other one is to, as you suggest, the responsible party could hire scientists and you could do separate studies. But us, you know, us scientists, we, we fall in love with our work. And, uh, you know, if I, were, if I were to do a bunch of studies and I'd write a nice report and it would look really beautiful and, and the government would do the same in, in their quarter and then we'd come together. And it's much more difficult to come together after you've been separate doing those things. And the the model really is the cooperative approach. Um, and the, the most successful NERDAs are approaches where uh, the government scientists and responsible party scientists become engaged very early on in the process. It's very helpful to see, to see the spill, how bad it was when it first happened. It's very helpful to follow it through um, and know what it is, know what it isn't. 
And it's also very helpful to have conversations early on before you, you know, develop that your report you fall in love with uh, and draw a line in the sand and take great offense to anyone criticizing it. And, you know, we're people too, scientists. And uh, the, the, uh, I like to say the data should speak and they should, but sometimes the data are unclear. So we have to have collegial discussions about that. And that generally works out a lot better if you just, if you cooperate from an early standpoint. And, and you said also that, uh, you know, it's out of play. Nerd is often out of play in the drills. Well, I would say that Nerd was kind of out of play in actual responses in the command center early on. Uh, not so much the case anymore. The government will send a Nerd liaison to the response to work with the environmental unit. Um, we on the, on the industry side, uh, which I'm speaking as now, but I mean, we, uh, Polaris and our company, we work for governments. Uh, we've done a lot of work for, for Canada. We write national contingency plans for nations in Africa and, and Europe and, and South America. And we recently wrote a, a vessel grounding response protocol for, for Mesoamerican countries. But, but from an industry perspective, um, it's very helpful to, uh, um, to consider during the response, have someone in the environmental unit that's thinking about NERDA, because oftentimes the response can cause injuries, and those are compensable under NERDA. Um, the recent grounding of the Wakashio in, in uh, Mauritius was a case we worked on, and there was, in the interest of trying to keep that large volume of oil from coming into the lagoon where there's a lot of corals, there ended up being some response damage to the corals from vessels and boom. Um, and that's in the United States, that's compensable under natural resource damage assessment. So it's good for both, uh, it's good for the government who, who cares and who's charged in being responsible to protect the environment. And it's good for the responsible party to not increase their injuries in the attempt to do the best thing they can to recover the oil. So sometimes uh, it actually is better, like we've learned years ago, sometimes it's better to uh, tread lightly in a, in a place like a coastal marsh um, and not go in there with excavators and heavy equipment because you might end up causing more long-term damage than, uh, than the oil itself if left to recover naturally. So you had the oil in the in the bays in, in Mauritius, I mean, it was grounded on coral too, was it? Yes, uh, it was. So what were the considerations, were there nerdic considerations when they were getting in there trying to actually refloat and tow the vessel out of there? That is another very good question because the nerdic regulation reads that uh, the damages, compensable damages result from the discharge or a threat of a discharge. So when a vessel is aground, that is quite often, probably most often, there's a threat of a discharge, that vessel coming apart. So the damages that result from uh, removing the vessel, and this is how a lot of coral uh, damage assessment has begun in the United States. And our, uh, Polaris has a lot of uh, experience on coral reef restoration from, even if there's not an oil spill, there may have been a threat of a discharge and getting that vessel off the coral reef caused considerable damage, and that's compensable under the Oil Pollution Act. Right. It's not like we have an option to leave her there. We're getting her off that coral. Yeah. Otherwise, she's going to break up, right? That makes yeah. it worse. So Exactly. And how we do that, you know, if we, 
there are ways of doing that that can cause considerable damage. Uh, tow cables and, and barges and uh, spud barges or jack up barges with putting their feet down on the bottom. And um, so it's, uh, and, and I have to say in the salvage industry in my career, the salvage industry used to be many years ago, uh, the solution was we just get a bigger hammer. Oh yeah, big big tug. Throw some some big yeah. anchors down on the bottom. Start kedging her off of there. And they're very savvy nowadays. They understand that most of these missions are aren't necessarily salvage missions. They're environmental missions, and that's where uh, the serious damages can occur. I mean, if a vessel's already a total constructive loss, um, then you should be very careful. There's no hurry to to try to save it. And uh, you need to be careful and consider the environment and and your process of doing so. Yeah, I did a a podcast with Todd Duke of Resolve. We talked a little about how the uh, saving of the environment, preventing the oil discharge has really become the top of the to-do list below salvaging the the vessel itself, that the costs of the environmental damage have the potential to yes. so greatly exceed the value of the vessel and its cargo anyway. Yeah. And, that, you know, uh, to their credit, Salvers, uh, we, we, uh, we're on the Smith Buscalis team and we're on Resolve. We work with Resolve and uh, uh, they, to their credit, they call us to come and, and let them know what they can do to help the environment. Well, you talked about the difference a little bit between what is uh, NERDA internationally versus the United States, what are some of the regulations related to natural resource damage assessment here in the U.S.? Well, here in the U.S., you've got uh, your main one is after the Exxon Valdez 1990, the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. Um, That's uh, for, for oil, chemical, grounding, that's a common one. Uh, There are also natural resource damages. Uh, Well, I should actually back up. Natural resource damage assessment started under CERCLA uh, and uh, CERCLA, basically Superfund uh, sites, hazardous material contamination. And there's the process of natural resource damage assessment and that is pretty much identical to uh, natural resource damages under the Oil Pollution Act. Um, CERCLA often involves, however, numerous responsible parties, say a number of industries along a river or in a bay that have, there have been decades of pollution that predate environmental laws. And it becomes, that can be quite a quagmire. <laughs> Frankly, it's, it's quite easier to work on a natural resource damage assessment with a single responsible party than as opposed to say, 82 responsible parties for in Portland Harbor or something like that. Right. Right. Well, that was all right. Came right out of uh, Love Canal up in Niagara. Yes. Right. I mean, that was the impetus for CERCLA and the creation of Superfund, where there wasn't actually a responsible party to go after for all of that contamination. Yeah. And so the the natural resource damage assessment portions of the Oil Pollution Act uh, read very similarly to CERCLA, although they um, I guess modernized it, and it is not just about whether there's a measurable or observable effect to a population, but it can be a measurable or observable effect uh, that that may not be detectable on a population level. 
So any injury whatsoever. It's not just, well, you know, some birds died, but it's not going to affect the population. No, some, if some birds died, you have to compensate for their loss. Okay, so what are the phases of natural damage resources sentinel? We started to kind of talk about the initial response, and sure. maybe we can start start with that. What do those early hours look like? What and what would be ideal? You know, if I, I I'm the incident commander for a responsible parties release, and I'm activating equipment. How early should I be thinking about NERDA and what would that activation really look like? From my standpoint, that's it's immediate. Um, it's uh, there's uh, I guess ideal may be a bad word. I, I often say that you know once oil comes out of the box, there there are no good solutions. That you know there just are uh, ways of trying to address it as best we can. Um, but ideally, in the first phase of natural resource damage assessment, is called the pre-assessment phase. And for the, for the trustees, this phase can last quite a while. They, they, uh, they have to determine jurisdiction, who all the trustee players are, um, whether injury occurred, things like that. But frankly, before, from our standpoint, before you even ask those questions, uh, well, we can work all that out later. If let's say I show up to a response on day one, we need to think about time sensitive data. If we don't collect data, uh, what, what are the ephemeral data? that if we don't collect them, they will be lost to us. Um, and those would be say maybe initial concentrations in the water column that may have an effect that where by tomorrow they might be different. Um, you wanna collect uh, things like this, a sample of the source oil, you know, before it weathers. Um, and you wanna start thinking about, uh, and, and this is where you merge with the response. What are the resources at risk? That's, as you know, a big task early on for the environmental unit and, and operations. What are the resources at risk and what are the uh, geographical response plans to address them? And uh, for, for the NERDA folks, knowing the resources at risk, the potential pathways to their exposure and injury can be helpful in uh, determining which data you can collect. Um, it's, uh, it can sometimes be difficult when you're in a, a room of a lot of people. Uh, for example, the Costco Busan in San Francisco in 2007, there happened to be a National Marine Sanctuary there. There was a, a land, uh, Bureau of Land Management property. There was national parks. There were national monuments. There are the state of California, NOAA, uh, you know, five or six universities. The first NERDA meeting occurred very early. I think it was on the second day or something, which is excellent that to get all those people together. But there were 41 people in the room and 31 people on the phone and uh, myself and another person for the responsible party. And uh, so it's, uh, it can be like herding cats and hats off to NOAA in that case uh, for really uh, narrowing it down to resource categories. Uh, in, in, the, in those cases, oftentimes what we will do to, to try to simplify it is form technical working groups. So there might be, there will be a mammal group of mammal experts, a bird group of, of bird experts, and a, you know, a shoreline or, or shellfish or mariculture fisheries uh, technical working group. And then you can uh, narrow down the field a little bit and start talking, start asking the questions. 
Um, you know, what questions do we need to answer to get to a restoration project, uh, basically? That's, that's the focus. The end game is a restoration project. So if we want to, let's say, if we, have, if we know we have injured marsh, we have oil in the marsh, um, one of the first things I want to know is, well, what do you guys do around here? Do you have any big marsh restoration projects you're working on? Because sometimes if you know what the restoration is that's likely to occur, it can really focus your data collection effort. Uh, if uh, and and uh, for something like marsh, your data collection effort uh, is can be quite simple. I mean, uh, a lot of times, you know, as scientists and academicians, and uh, you know, we want to do lots of studies, but sometimes they're not always directly relevant to getting to the the end game. I think we have uh, there there are cer certain there are several sources of data. Um, or several uh, categories of data that we uh, uh, refer to in an oil spill. They're data that helps make a better response. Um, what are the physical properties of the oil? Uh, are, is it going to work? With, are, are skimming vessels going to work? Things like that. Um, there are data that help us understand the injury, how much was lost and, and how much, uh, um, you know, how many birds or how many acres. And then there are data that help us scale the injury to a restoration project. So in the Deepwater Horizon, of course, there was, uh, there was a lot of money given to universities and there was a lot of data collected and it's all very interesting and very helpful, but a lot of it may not be directly relevant to NRDA. Like um, what's happening in the microbial community may not help us determine uh, how much wetland we need to replace the, the, the wetland that was affected. Um, so it's uh, your goal early on is to focus the groups, the NERDA groups into data that will help us determine the loss and data that will help us to scale that loss to a restoration project. And knowing what restoration projects may be available to us can help focus that. So who's going to lead this effort? You've mentioned NOAA. Are they the lead trustee for natural damage resource assessment? Oftentimes they are. Um, there'll be a, what they call a flat federal lead uh, administrative trustee. That could be the Fish and Wildlife Service in some cases. If it's in a maritime refuge, uh, a Fish and Wildlife Refuge, they may be the lead. That, that happens frequently. It's in a national park. Uh, the National Park Service has a damage assessment program. They may be the lead. Uh, sometimes the state, non-federal, can be a lead if it's in state waters and it's uh, maybe it's not a big incident. And uh, oftentimes the state will lead, even if NOAA and other federal agencies are involved. I would say on significant incidents, though, that affect uh, you know the ocean environment in a, not just a marine sanctuary or national park or state waters that are sort of a wider scope of distribution of oil that NOAA is most often the lead and has a very capable group in their Office of Response and Restoration um, to do so. Are they good at keeping the NERDA community on a track towards that restoration project? I mean, it sounds like it could be very easy to wander off on tangents that are unrelated yeah. and collect 
all kinds of data that at the end of the day you wouldn't really know what to do with yeah or or that's very true and i'm i'm guilty as a scientist you know we we like to just have questions answered and and sometimes aren't thinking about why we're answering them because we're just maybe inquisitive and yeah, that can be a challenge and i'd say that the the uh, federal from in my experience federal lead agencies have been quite adept at uh, at leading the state and other groups uh, to focus on the the endpoint goal of uh, restoration uh, your, your earlier question about what are the phases i mean we're still in the pre-assessment phase but we have spoken a little bit about planning restoration uh, which is the second phase and so the the planning restoration should be the focus and uh, and how do we get to the scale of restoration and we'll worry about you know implementing getting the funds and the people to implement the restoration later which is third phase of uh, natural resource damage assessment so you have the pre-assessment which should occur very early during the response and if you ask me about you know which cases are successful i would say that it's always well the cases that are most successful are the cases where there's early engagement and cooperation because um, it leads to you know we know what everybody's thinking um, there's uh, there's lots of smart people on both sides for the government and for the responsible party and having more brains uh, working on the problem um, oftentimes is, is very helpful and uh, and the challenges occur when uh, you know when there isn't a lot of communication and then it becomes a challenge to meet in the middle and, and find a negotiated settlement, or you know, we may be thinking about different restoration projects. And the sooner we talk about that, I know early on in my career, a lot, uh, a lot of times uh, people didn't want to think about restoration right away. You know, it's too soon to think about restoration, and I, I always feel that it's never too soon to think about uh, what restoration is out there. In fact. Um, I think the new Carissa in Oregon was a good example. One of the earlier examples, as well as the Bellingham pipeline in Olympia, or in, in the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Olympic, Olympic pipeline, pipeline in yep. Bellingham, um, were good examples of where the responsible party said, you know what, we're going to have some exposure for natural resource damages here. And we have lots of people here now and lots of equipment. Is there something we can do now? And in the case of the new Carissa, there was the, you know, the uh, um, non-endemic dune grass that was uh, out competing habitat for snowy plovers that liked to nest in the dunes and the dune grass was invasive and we had heavy equipment out working on the beach. And so we cleared a number of acres of uh, dune grass for snowy plover uh, habitat. Oh, even while the oil cleanup was going yes. on. And, oh, actually. They call that emergency restoration, or nowadays in the Deepwater Horizon, they call it early restoration, where you know you're going to have liability, and if you do something now, and the reason that that is so valuable, or another reason why that is so valuable, is that the longer you, the longer it takes to implement restoration, phase three of NERDA, the, the greater the damages will be because it's a, a natural resource economists tell us that the present day value of a, a resource has more value than that resource being put in the ground 10 years from now. 
and uh, they call it the uh, discount in, in natural resource damage assessment in habitat equivalency. So if you do restoration concurrent with the oil spill, you don't have that time lag or as much of a time lag where damages accrue. Because if the habitat is still recovering, it's still recovering and then damages keep accruing over time. But if you put something over here, if you put an, a, a, another habitat restoration project somewhere that compensates for that loss, then you can stop, the, uh, essentially stop the bleeding, stop the, the uh, interim lost use of damages. Provided it's successful, you know, the government of course wants to see monitoring that, uh, pr you know, proof of performance that the project is working, that in the new Carissa, that snowy plovers are, are, are mating and, and reproducing in that area, or in the, in the case of the Bellingham pipeline, which was a nearly 400,000 gallon unleaded fuel spill and, and fire in a stream that went through a town, a salmon stream, uh, the early restoration or the emergency restoration was putting in some off-channel salmon habitat uh, on the stream and doing some restoration on the stream and the proof of performance was of course if salmon are using that habitat uh, the following year. Was that uh, successful? It was very successful. It was uh, the response was incredibly successful as well uh, and as NERDA uh, practitioners you know the goal of course is to help the response as best we can as well you know recommend uh, ways that we can clean up the oil so that the natural resources are unaffected and that incident occurred in June and there were a lot of uh, you know fall chinook and other species were coming back in a few months and uh, we had there was fuel in the stream in the gravel and uh, so we got you know they sent spider hose uh, sort of like a, a backhoe but it crawls around like a spider down into the canyon it was a pretty steep canyon and we basically just agitated the sediment. There was a, a lake and a dam, a reservoir at the head of the stream. And so what we would do is we would shut down the flow by day and go in with the spider hose and agitate all the sediment to get the fuel out. And then we'd open up the floodgates on the dam at night and have a, a nice heavy flow overnight in the creek. And three months later, we had uh, snorkel surveys and fisheries biologists, and we had salmon returning and spawning successfully in the stream. Um, that fall. And so that helps to, you know, helps to reduce your, your natural resource damages, you know, the sooner, the better the response, um, the lesser the natural resource damages. So when we, when we say for drill purposes that NERD is out of play, it sounds to me like you really can't separate NERDA no. from the rest of the activities of the environmental unit. I mean, the environmental unit, right out of the chute, is looking at resources at risk and providing operations with guidance for recovery and protection tactics. Yep. And how is that even separate from from NERDA? Uh, you know, it's not. It's uh, I, in today. There is certainly a realization throughout the environmental unit on, on both the industry and government side that how the response goes can affect the long-term damages. And the goal is to, the goal of any good response is to limit the damage, control the source, um, protect the, uh, the sensitive resources, um, the resources at risk, uh, 
And so that's really all a, a nerd, a nerd gold as well. Well, that sounds, um, that sounds like my answers in the press conference. You've just, <laughs> you've just, you've just given Sam Sacco's guidance for what I say when we talk about the response, right? So yeah. how do we, yeah. how do, we can't really separate the two. And I guess, you know, I, I can understand nerd being out of play because, you know, nobody's interested in the, uh, um, you know, whether we're going to do fish tissue analysis for polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and things like that in a, in a drill. Um, it might be getting a little too tedious for the drill. But, but the, the important part of NERDA in the response aspect is that uh, let's cut this, the tail off of this as much as we can with a good response. Because the longer the tail of, of a spill, the longer the, the tail of injuries, the greater the lost interim use until you know pending full recovery of the environment and the greater the NERDA damages. So if we did want to exercise NERDA, because really we want to exercise everything that we're going to do at some point in our three-year drill cycle. I mean, if it's something that we're going to do in a real event, we should be doing it in an exercise. Yeah. And from the responsible party side, that may simply be saying, that may simply be act activating our NERDA liaison contractor. I mean, that may be all it is for me is to say, sure. hey, Polaris, uh, I'm, I'm activating you for the uh, deputy environmental unit leader and please provide a NERDA liaison. And would you sure. say that at that point I've exercised NERDA for the purposes of my... I would say even if you don't ask me, you've exercised it because I will be, I will have it in my mind anyway. In other words, if the environmental unit is writing a sampling plan for the response, I'm thinking about, well, you want a source sample and you get, please get four liters because I'm probably going to use that for NERDA. Uh, you know, I might use that for NERDA. Or uh, you're collecting, I mean, they're collecting water samples or they're collecting and, and the water sample really, you know, unless they're considering dispersants and doing some sort of smart protocol, uh, a water sample really isn't going to help the response. So, you know, the, the guys out in the field aren't going to say, well, the water levels are, you know, 30 parts per million so we can turn off the skimmer. That, uh, that doesn't, that, that's helpful to NERDA. Um, so, uh, you know, whether you tell me to activate NERDA or not, I'm thinking about it. And I'm sure the, the, uh, the trustees and the government and the environmental unit folks are as well. And uh, we often talk about it, even if it's not in play. Uh, what would we be doing? Everything sort of interacts a little bit. If you think about um, the exposures that I talked about, say, third party claims, um, we have used uh, data collection and third party claims in NERDA frequently. We had. Uh, there was a, an acid spill in Tampa where 250 million gallons of acid processed water from a fertilizer plant went into the bay. We immediately went out and pulled crab traps um, to see what's alive and dead. And we got a lot of good NERDA data. We, we, we identified where the zone of uh, effects were that, that uh, killed organisms and where they didn't. And then we also uh, you know, got data on the third party claim of fishermen and their traps and how many. and um, if there's a mariculture operation in uh, the new Carissa in Oregon, oyster growers in the Bay, they, they may have a claim 
uh, for damage to their, their product, whether that's a perception damage or whether there's actual oil influence and sampling the oysters and finding out they're a filter feeding organism and they may uh, bioconcentrate oil in their tissues and sampling those organisms tells us about their damages and it tells us about uh, natural resource damages to other filter feeding organisms in the bay. So there's, you know, between your, your third party claims and your response data and, and then any separate NERDA data you have, there can be a lot of interaction between all those things. You mentioned dispersants and application of aerial dispersants is one of the tactics that we look at for oil spills, but with yeah. dispersants, now I'm adding another pollutant to the water column in an effort to make a bad situation less bad. Yeah. I mean, ideally, I wouldn't be adding anything to the water column, yeah. but I'm trying to mitigate the damage of the oil spill with a tactic that will make it less bad. But how does that affect NERDA? I mean, I'm like up in Canada, they consider that to be another pollutant. It's yeah. not, it's not, well, I'm not a lawyer and I don't pretend to be, but it's my understanding, that, <laughs> you know, that they might allow you to do that or they might say, well, go ahead. You know, uh, they won't actually give permission because they might come back and, and uh, hold you liable for it later. Um, I can understand that concern. I, I do. I, I think, you know, to me, the use of dispersants is a, uh, it's a nerd question. Uh, I mean, just like firefighting foam is another pollutant you're adding as well. And you want to put out the fire. You're, you're looking at, like, like I said earlier, once it's, uh, once oil's out of the box, there are no good solutions. There are just some solutions that are better than others. And that's where the, the RRT comes in when they look at a, at a request to use dispersants. They say, okay, well, this might make it worse for water column organisms, but it's bird migratory season and we have tens of thousands of waterfowl coming through here. And if we have that oil on the surface of the water, that's going to be a, a massive problem or, or oil's heading ashore to a, uh, a very sensitive uh, resource. And right now we're in deep water where the, uh, there are organisms out there in the water column, but they're not nearly as abundant when that oil gets into the near shore environment over the coral reef or the seagrass or the mangroves or something like that. So we wanna disperse it now. It's not a good option, it's just a better one. Um, and so you have to, uh, you have to expect some damage from it, perhaps, as, as long as it's, uh, it's protecting something, a, a greater a resource. And will I get penalized from a damage assessment perspective for the potential damage that the dispersant did, even though I'm pointing to the damage that the dispersant prevented by keeping the oil out of the shoreline environments, the near shore environments? Well, I wouldn't say penalized. I, I would say, yes, you will, uh, you will be liable for the damages that may occur from the oil in the water column. But your, if you use the word penalty, your penalty will be less than if you didn't do it. Um, if you didn't do it, the, the damages uh, could be far greater 
and then the cost of restoration far greater. And um, I mean, that's not, it's not a penalty. Uh, it's a, it's just, it's a consequence of, of the, of the game, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't look at it as a penalty. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of putting more chemicals in the ocean, but I'm, I would agree in the use of dispersants in many cases that it, uh, that it's going to reduce uh, injury elsewhere significantly. And when that's the case, I think it's a decision that, that uh, the RRT makes correctly. How about in the, in the kind of near shore environment? I mean, we have areas that are pre-approved, if that's really the case, but yeah. pre-approved for dispersants and then conditionally uh, approved for dispersants. And then we have dispersant uh, no-go zones. When we're applying dispersant in these case-by-case -case, um, areas, what kind of uh, NERDA evaluation is taking place as part of that decision process? I, I, is the question if we're applying dispersants in areas that are near shore and potentially, uh, you know, questionable areas where you need permission? Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. I think it's the considerations are things like time of year, are the, the, the resources at risk, are they present? And, uh, and again, the consequences of what are the consequences of not doing it? I mean, to me, they're all, to a response person, they're response questions. To me, they're all, they're nerdy questions as well. And some of the things they, they want to know, um, they would, they should want to know are, you know, what's, what is present right now. And that's why local state uh, biologists and state scientists, the local knowledge is critical because we work all over the world. And, you know, I don't know anything about penguins, but I might work on a spill somewhere. And so we will always look to the, that's, that's, you know, the coming together early of uh, the resource trustees and the uh, oil spill scientists can be quite effective because you have scientists who are familiar with oil and then you have local scientists that aren't familiar with oil, but they're familiar with their resources. And uh, if, uh, if, we, if we can get along, that is a real big plus. And we should always welcome the local folks. But back to the question that I'm already forgetting. Yes, the, what, what we need to know from the local folks is what is present. If we put, uh, if we put the dispersants on this, uh, what is present out there? Because I can tell you what's going to happen when we put the dispersants on the oil. Now you tell me what organisms are there at risk and, and their abundance and uh, their importance to the, the region. And, and then together come, come with a decision. When we explain to them what happens and uh, having their input as to, well, you know, I'd rather risk it or not can influence the decision. A new consideration that we have at least in Washington state law and, and, and also at the federal level in the United States is the worry about non-floating oils. Uh, oils that uh, either right out of the box have a specific gravities greater than one where we know that they're going to sink or that through uh, weathering you know, may sink. And we're required to do an evaluation for the potential for sink within an hour under Washington state law. Yeah. Um, and, and we've already agreed that NERDA and the EU, you know, are, are kind of in, inseparable. Well, 
what have you done to help clients in that kind of evaluation? Can I look to you in those very in that very early hour to help me provide that kind of assessment? Um, from a response or a nerd angle? From a, I think I'm going to talk from a response angle first. Okay, sure. Uh, um, I'm calling you. It's like we've got this oil spill. Yep. Uh, Greg, we're activating yep. a Polaris for the EU. And by the way, I need a non-floating oil evaluation. Okay. Yes. No problem. You know, it, it has become a very large deal with some of the uh, the deal bits and things coming out of Canada, and uh, and it ha always has been uh, a possibility with with the heavier oils, and and we see it. You know, in the, I guess I'd say in the old days, um, uh, there were there were all sorts of crude methods we would use with uh, weights, and we call them diaper drags. You put a sorbent on a weight with a chain, and those things work well with with uh, with GPS, and uh, you know you do a methodical track and you search the bottom. Um, but uh, we, there's now quite a bit of interest, and, and Canada has developed. I know they were the first, I think, to develop the shoreline cleanup assessment technique manual in 1984 with Ed Owens, and I believe now they're the first to have developed a USCAT, an underwater SCAT manual. Oh, I, I hadn't heard of that. Uh, the USCAT manual, I'll, I'll send you a copy. It's, uh, it's pretty comprehensive of all the uh, of all the techniques available uh, to look for it from, from side scan, multi-beam and, and uh, um, you know, all, all sorts of ways of looking for it, including the old, you know, they don't call it diaper drag anymore, but those techniques are still viable. Uh, underwater ROVs. And in the deep water horizon, we had a, uh, a USCAT team um, that were uh, responsible. They wore their wetsuits every day and they were out in the water with shovels. And uh, we had a, developed a system of quantifying how much oil we're finding in the subsurface. And when we came upon recoverable oil, we could access that, with, which is another question with sunken oil. What, what, okay, so I found it. Now, how do I get it? Yeah. Do I wrap a Los Angeles class attack submarine in sorbent pads? <laughs> exactly. Shimmy through the water. What do I do? Exactly. There, there are. You know, we we've put uh, we've we've stuffed crab traps with snare up in uh, in Burrard Inlet in Vancouver, BC, and put them offshore. Did a lot work? of times. Uh, yeah, yeah, you find it in there. It's it's a lot of times your your sunken oil might not be. You think of oil that's floating in a slick offshore, and it just sinks to the bottom. A lot of times the sunken oil is, is a result of shoreline oiling that gets entrained in sediment, becomes heavier, the tides come and go, and you start getting it washing offshore. And, uh, and so we, we uh, you know, just offshore, we might put crab traps and snare. Uh, river spills, that worked really well in a river spill because you can just put it downstream and you can set a series of those up or, you know, you can use chain link fences with snare. And the water flows through, and the the oleophilic material attracts uh, tar balls traveling downstream. That that can work. Um, well, that we, sounds like another podcast. It does. It <laughs> does. I, and I know who you should talk to. Also, I am on Friday. I'm talking to Ed Owens. Oh well, there you go. Absolutely. That that that's it. Perfect. I, I know. Yeah, on the Mississippi River, we had a spill of uh, this was oil that sunk straight to the bottom. And uh, we, we located it fairly well with multi-beam. And then we had a geostationary crane that could, you know, once we had it mapped, um, the crane would know exactly where it was going down. And then we would characterize what was coming up in the buckets if it had a, 
over a certain percentage of oil, we kept going. And then when it was under a certain percentage of oil, we moved to the next grid and we could vary because the crane was had a computer system and it was uh, geostationary and it could it could figure out exactly where it was. We could map the whole area that was cleaned and, and was not, and we could map the end result. And much like a shoreline cleanup, you'll have a how clean is clean and a sign off. And uh, but not all, you know, you don't want to put a, a large uh, bucket on the on the benthic organisms in a lot of places and pick up clams and, and other things. And so it's just like with a shoreline, there would be instances where you have sensitive resources where maybe the light touch is better than an aggressive approach. But it's a, it's a challenge because it's sort of like sort of like sampling the earth from space. If we were an alien, uh, you know, you send down a butterfly net and you come up with a you come up with a butterfly and you think that's what lives down there. But uh, so it's it's definitely a challenge, the sunken oil problem. And in places like the Mississippi where visibility is zero, um, then you need uh, you need equipment, specialized equipment. All right, it's like that. It's like that old story of the blind man describing an elephant. Right, he grabs onto its tail and says, "Oh, an elephant! It's like a rope." <laughs> and another right. one grabs onto his legs. Oh no, no, it's a tree. It's like a big tree. Right, <laughs> and because they just yeah, they just yeah. see it pieces. Yeah, that's exactly it. We we only see pieces. Um, uh, of the bottom when we sample like that and you know all sampling has that to some degree but on the on a shoreline we can you know we see large pieces well it's like you cast in the lead line back in the age of sail right with yeah the, the tallow at the bottom of the lead and you're pulling up a sample of the bottom you know like, yeah like sand and broken shell oh we, we know where we are off the off the grand banks from that yeah Right, right. And it's only 30 feet deep, except for the rock you didn't see. The rock you didn't see. Right. <laughs> there aren't that many of those left out there. We pretty much know where all the rocks are. Although, uh, when, I, when I used to sail freight in Alaska, there was a, a section going um, from like uh, Sandpoint to King Cove, where there was just a single track line of soundings where a, a vessel had gone through. And there was actually kind of a a 360 degree loop in the, in the middle of it. And there's no soundings anywhere else. And the, the island, when you, the islands that were there, when you measure them with GPS are not where they are on the chart because they were, huh. they were fixed in a different way. So there are still parts of the world where we don't have as much oh, data yeah. as you might think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think anyone actually knows how many islands are in the nation of Indonesia. You'll, you'll see values between 17,000 and 23,000. <laughs> and the shipping lanes, I just, where I worked on a case recently down there where there was a, a very large crude carrier with a draft of 20 meters and it ran aground in the middle of a shipping lane. Oh, really? So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we've given some examples of successes for uh, NERDA. Uh, Whatcom Creek and the Olympic Pipeline a Spill and Fire, that NERDA restoration for salmon was a success. And it sounds like we had some successes in Oregon during New Carissa with doing some early restoration. Do you have an example of some failures? Well, I, I would be reluctant to use the word failure. Maybe I'll use the word challenges. The challenging cases are cases where say um, there's not 
easily identifiable restoration projects for the injury. Um, one challenging case, very challenging case for, for all sides involved was a case off the coast of Georgia, uh, some distance that involved injury to loons and loons don't live in Georgia. Um, they were just passing through and loons, uh, you know, a, a lot of them are in Canada on Canadian lakes. And so we have a cross cultural, uh, cross border, you know, can we do restoration in Canada? Um, and that was a, a challenge. The, the, I don't think the, uh, the, the uh, United States Department of Justice knew whether that was possible or at the time we discussed it. I think we ended up doing some work in Maine, even though there was part of the regulations say that, um, you know, there has to be a nexus to the injury and uh, uh, ancillary benefits are of a project. If you build a marsh, it has benefits to other birds and other things and costs has an effect. And even though the uh, Canadian project was uh, much less expensive, um, we ended up doing it in Maine simply because we couldn't uh, deal with the cross-border issue uh, for compensation. But as far as the environment is concerned, you know, it's uh, the lakes in Maine do great things for loons that travel through the United States and their migratory paths. So, um, you know, from a scientific standpoint, it was, it seemed like the right thing to do. We were just unable to do it. Well, and any restoration is good restoration, right? Yeah, absolutely. For the resource affected, you know, if it's if you it addresses take the planet as a whole, anything we do to make it better is yeah. good for, for everybody. That was also a question on a number of spills in the Delaware Bay area because they have the horseshoe crabs and the red knot, the bird that comes from Brazil, just to feed on the horseshoe crab eggs during the season, and the spill was, you know, what happens if we do something to these birds that or, or the the uh, you know, the horseshoe crabs. Uh, so there are just, just as in a response, there are cross-border issues with how do we respond if we have, uh, you know, a, a Texas-Mexico incident or a Canada-Pacific Northwest or East Coast incident, uh, how do we work together? Uh, I don't know that we have successfully negotiated that in the NERDA realm. Um, we, there's a, we, we like our restoration projects here. Well, as we get ready to close out from this episode, do you have any final advice that you might give to me as an incident commander or to a responsible party uh, as it relates to, to NERDA, especially in the early stages of a response? Sure. I, I, I mean, I definitely would say uh, get them engaged quickly. My dog is leaning over here. Sorry. Well, mine's, mine's over here, too. See him? Little corgi head. <laughs> He's driving me crazy. Get over here. See, there he is. Hey, there's Winston's there. over here. He's my, my deputy incident commander. Okay, that's right. <laughs> no, closing thoughts uh, for, the, for the, uh, uh, the incident commander in a response. Have your client engage their NERDA personnel. Um, have them engage the uh, resource trustees um, in discussions and ask them, you know, what their thoughts are and what they're doing and also get their thoughts for public messaging. Uh, like you would go to the environmental unit or the bird group. Um, sometimes we see public messages uh, and we're uh, maybe not horrified is, is not a good word, but we're uh, you know, a little bit disappointed that maybe the, the appropriate people, and, I, and during a response that's so challenging because you, know, you can't find them um, or it's, it's difficult, but um, Engaging them early on and getting them 
somebody in the environmental unit with their nerd hat on because uh, the government will have somebody with their nerd hat on and uh, and reviewing the messaging is also helpful because the earlier we start as i uh, i just keep beating that drum the earlier we start thinking about it the better off we'll be in the response end of things and reducing damage and not causing more uh, more harm than good and the better off we'll be in coming to a, a working relationship with the trustees and understanding what restoration is out there and understanding the people that have the local knowledge and uh uh, when, when you meet somebody a year after the spill and they may not have been there and you, you're, you're much more likely to be reluctant or skeptical or, or cautious or rather than having worked together uh, at the time of the incident, as, as everybody in response knows, we're, it's a traveling, we're a traveling circus. And, uh, you know, we see the same uh, Coast Guard and government and responders and scientists. We see a lot of the same and we develop great working relationships over the years. And that leads to effective conclusions. Greg, would you like to provide anybody with a uh, uh, means of contact for you, a website, a Twitter handle? Uh, how could somebody get a hold of you if they're looking for some assistance with Nerdo or in the environmental unit? Uh, PolarisAppliedSciences.com uh, will get you all you need. You don't even have to type that in. You can just type in Polaris and oil and you'll find us. Perfect. <laughs> Greg Challenger, President, Marine Scientist from Polaris Applied Sciences, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for participating in the Tactics Meeting. I invite you to check out our new website at thetacticsmeeting.online. I'll be at Clean Pacific in Renton, Washington in August, so please come up and say hi. Remember, hope is not a strategy. In the immortal words of the Canadian rock band Rush, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Until next time.